0: Is this a subjective view of risk, of me based on my upbringing, based on what I know versus what the world knows?
1: Welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where I interview leaders not defined by position or title. Everyday people who lead their lives in extraordinary ways, And on this podcast, they share their stories, their life lessons, and practical tools in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders. My guest today is a data guru who has helped businesses grow and thrive during the pandemic. Maz is the founder of Translate Culture. We find out how he got into data and analytics why embracing doing the boring stuff is so important as well as discussing a beginner's mindset fatherhood and so much more let's jump into the episode today i have the pleasure of talking to my brother from another mother how are you doing my bro i'm good thanks bro how you doing i am doing well looking forward to this interview So for those of you who don't know, Maz is a data guru, the guy who operates behind the scenes of a lot of the well-known successful brands in the UK with his company Translate Culture. Maz, do you
0: mind just sharing what is Translate Culture? Well, first and foremost, thanks for having me. I'm sure it's been a pleasure kind of watching you build this platform and uh, yeah. Just want to say thank you for having me. My name is Maz or Masibi Manima, founder of Translate Culture. I don't call myself a CEO yet, which is just, uh, just, just something that I, I always like to start with. But yeah, so founder of Translate Culture, we're essentially a data marketing agency. We work with primarily consumer brands. And what we do for them is help them find and retain customers. So most of our clients are e-commerce businesses, predominantly black-owned businesses, which are, as you kind of go through this interview, you find out how that sort of came about. But yeah, so we help e-commerce businesses basically using platforms such as Facebook, Google, YouTube, ad platforms to, to find their customers and, and convey their offering and, and get those customers to, well, get those prospects to become customers. And then we help them with a strategy on how they retain those customers and scale and find more customers like that. So we started off as a paid media agency initially. So we were just doing ads, as I've mentioned. But we started to expand a bit more into sort of data strategy, marketing strategy. We've taken some some roles within um, some organizations where we act as an extension of their marketing team and, and their data team, actually going through some um, branding change ourselves, as in, we're still going to be called Translate Culture, but I guess our tagline has changed to, we take luck out of the equation. And what we mean by that is, is the way we use data to make sure that some of the decisions that we're making isn't or some of the results that we're seeing, should I say, isn't purely out of luck. It's actually down to some measurable actions and strategies.
1: You released an article explaining how you've helped black founders generate six figures in online sales since the first lockdown, which backs up your statement that you just talked around taking luck out of the equation. I'm curious to understand how have you managed to keep your clients and generate great returns at a time when there was a lot of um, fear, anxiety, and you would think that ad spend will be an area that other businesses naturally would cut spending on.
0: Yeah. So which goes back to the earlier point I mentioned. So most of the businesses we work with are black owned businesses, primarily because give a bit, take a step back. The way I kind of got into building translate culture was off the back of me spending I guess years just helping my friends businesses so whenever somebody had uh, a digital business or wanted to launch something online I was usually the go-to person within my community and obviously I was working in sort of, uh, sort of like corporate careers and stuff I always had you know a few side hustles which I'm sure we'll probably discuss uh, through this this conversation but as I build that, that reputation people reach out or you know, to run help them with Facebook ads or track their analytics and all that type of stuff And then it came to to the point where a few people decided they were going to pay for my services. And I was, to be fair, I was doing it for free at the time because I wasn't really thinking about building a company at that stage. But, you know, a few of my friends' businesses started to take off and they needed to grow pretty quickly. So we agreed a fee for me to run their ads for them. Next thing I know, within a year of doing that, I ended up having about six or seven clients and I just made the decision then to say, look, I'm gonna step away from my career and go full time on this. And at that time, I probably was earning about, I would say, probably half of what I was earning in my career, if if not less than that, I think. But I just took the leap of faith to to kind of go and just grow, and the company. And it just so happened I left. I think I went full time in September. Six months later, obviously, well, yeah, four to six months later, we've obviously had COVID. And then come March, we had a lockdown. I think up to that point I had about six, six to eight clients. And I just made it my I made it my um, mission to make sure first and foremost that none of my clients went out of business, especially as a majority of them were black-owned businesses. And we were already seeing some of the impact that COVID was having in within our community, within ethnic minority communities. So I yeah, just decided to double down and went beyond just the paid ads. I started reaching out to my clients and saying, look. How else can I be of, of any help? A few of them took my, my offer and I ended up basically offering them wider strategic advice on, you know, how they can pivot the business, how they can test out new audiences. And it just so happened at that time because the approach that we take to advertising or the approach we take to marketing is very, you know, we follow a systematic approach and we're always learning when there was a lockdown, a lot of businesses started cutting back on their ads, but we had so much learning and we knew who our audiences were for most of our clients that we were actually able to double down like confidently, which is brilliant on these platforms because if there's less people advertising, then it means you have you spend less to reach more people. And it just so happened that I would say probably if not all my clients had their best sort of months during that period. And I think it was just down to the fact that we doubled down and it gave everybody the opportunity to really start to focus on what matters, and that's really understanding your customers and being able to communicate to them. And especially at a time when everybody's at home, so it was just it was just a, a really good case study to have. And for us, that's why we changed our our tagline to taking luck out of the equation because a lot of it was very data driven and testing everything that we were pushing live.
1: Wow, how did you get into data?
0: randomly actually obviously you've known me for a few years but i think uh, when i went to uni i went to uni to actually study finance i think my whole thing has always been i've always had a simple theory for things like as long as i can justify my decision within myself i'm happy like i went to uni to do finance my rationale was because that's where the money is the money's in the bank <laughs> so i'm gonna work i'm gonna end up, i wanted to work in a bank because that's where the money was so when do you need to do finance first couple of weeks, obviously when you're in university, you get to test out other courses and I did marketing and like introduction to marketing. And I thought, actually, you know what, this is a better fit. Then I switched my course to business studies, specialized in marketing, did that for three years. Obviously I had industrial placement, got a grad scheme. And then I went into work for a car company as part of the grad scheme and learned a lot through there, just how to work in a corporation and everything. I always wanted to work in marketing communications Obviously, there was a lot of opportunities there. So I ended up actually working more in the in kind of marketing and sales role, which led to a lot of number crunching. And at the time, when you're young, you're thinking, oh, this is boring. We gonna, I want to do the exciting things. I want to work on the TV ad campaign. I want to work on the digital display thing that we're doing that's, that everybody's going to see, right? But the work I was doing, nobody was seeing because it's kind of just internal, like reporting this worked or this didn't work. But I just developed a really good I guess understanding of like just numbers and like excel like just basic sort of data analysis skills and at the same time i had a few startups with a few of my friends so i had one called mixtape madness which was a uk streaming platform with about three or four of my friends and there was brothers with no game which was like a, a blog that we had at the time later turned into a youtube channel and then became a, a, a essentially a tv series but at that time obviously I'm juggling all of these things, juggling a career and two other startups. It just came to the point where I just thought to myself, I'm going to double down on this data thing. And it goes back to this taking luck out of the equation, especially when you have a number of other founders, it's hard to make a decision because there's four or five different opinions, right? And my approach was like, I'm just going to I'm just gonna follow the data. I can't say whether I'm right or wrong, Where if we can't agree, what does the number say? And then, yeah, I just started doubling down on that because I saw that in the corporate world. I saw that Whenever there was a crunch decision making thing, we tend to kind of lean we tended to lean to the numbers. Um, and numbers could be wrong after a while, like, but at least you have something that is exclusive from our opinions. And then yeah, just start seeing results in that sense, and then I started to double down on that, did taught myself Google Analytics, just taught myself all of these different tools. And then from that job, I moved to the British Medical Journal, where I became a CRM analyst, essentially started my career again at the bottom of this almost like a new career. So I moved away from marketing and sales down to the bottom of the data ladder. And then within five years in that company, I was promoted three times. And I left there as a senior CRM analyst. And I was also doing, I was also a data product manager. How did I get into it? Literally just self-awareness and 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 whenever i learn something that i find interesting i just go down the rabbit hole and and double down and i think data for as you probably know is is the future isn't it
1: there are a number of great points you just um touched on which i really want to emphasize not just gloss over so number one doing the boring stuff so we live in a culture that idolizes like doing the glamorous sexy exciting things a lot of people myself included i want to avoid doing the boring stuff. Yeah, as you just shared, that was very, very foundational for you. And you just really touched on why it's so important for us to embrace the boring. And number two, you also talked about being willing to start again. So when you moved across to um, BMJ, you had that beginner's mindset. You're willing to reinvent yourself in doing something different. But how do you develop that level of self-awareness, allowing you to see things from a different perspective, and approach life the way that you have done
0: good question i think it's one is part of my personality i'm happy to be wrong in the context of being stronger and and or better in, in the pursuit of growth is, is probably the, the best way to, to do it i think whenever i was young i've I always questioned things and i felt like there's something humbling about that because then you almost start with the mindset that you don't know it's like you only know what you know right and i've Learned over the years, actually having that sort of curious, sort of beginner's mindset has actually helped me most of the time. and the time when it doesn't help you, it can be you can be if you're too much into the beginner's mindset, you may actually not be aware of what you do know. Um, and you've known me for years, and I think a lot of people have always been aware of my potential, probably more so than I had. Right? And there's probably times when I've over-indexed or overworked on things, like gone down the rabbit hole for too long, but i still think with everything you do you have to do you have to do the work especially as a founder um, i did everything like when i this business for the first say in 10 months or 12 months even it was just me so i did i did the campaigns i did the pitch i did the data analysis i did the financing i did the like i did everything and i think where i've why this business is probably arguably one of the most successful businesses that I've been involved in in terms of its trajectory has been down to that it has been down to the fact that I didn't overthink a lot of things I I didn't think about automation first right I didn't think about building a big team and then having people do loads of things I just thought let me do the dirty work first and then as I learn I then optimize and I think to answer your question where that comes from I, I don't know I think it's a personality thing but also a lot of people that I look up to in business in sport always have a beginner's mindset so for example like one of my favorite sports people is lebron james he's the best he's been the best basketball player in the world for probably the last 10 years but everyone that's in his team will tell you he's probably one of the most hard-working people in that team we see the same with cristiano ronaldo you see the same with the likes of jay-z and you see it's the same with the likes of a lot of business people right it's just this thing where you don't want to leave it to chance. You almost want to do the work and start over again. It's almost like you climbed the top of one mountain. You need to just keep climbing. There's always another mountain, and I think that makes life more. Well. It makes life worthwhile as well to know that there's so much more that I'm gonna to need to learn. So yeah, I think hopefully that answers your question. No,
1: I definitely does. One thing you touched on earlier on was about the fact that you were adding value to your friends and others before this even became a business
0: mm-hmm.
1: how did people know to come to you to be the go-to guy around data mm-hmm. and then how did you also build a trust with those founders that you mentioned during covid for them to be like i'm going to trust mass to <laughs> to spend money in this and i know i'm going to get a return in this during a period where you're going through a pandemic so they'd be
0: worried mm-hmm. very good question i think when I think about, well, actually, I, I think about when I first started to develop that reputation, it's because from early, I was always trying something. Like, I was always, I was quite early on this, sort or of digital marketing, sort of building your own business. I remember when I was in uni, I was just trying different ideas. And it's funny when you see things like Huffington Post, like, I was trying to do something like that, but for our community, if you remember, right? people bleep leon and everyone, which was kind of like user-generated content. And it's funny because... You do these things, you you always get those moments You're like, oh, I thought of that But it doesn't really matter, it's down to execution So I had all these things that I was doing But what I didn't realise, even though These things didn't take off and they might have been Failure or seen as failure at that stage I was picking up a tacit knowledge Stuff that I probably wasn't even aware That I was aware of Until I started to Apply some of that knowledge in the corporate world And vice versa And I saw the value of that because every year People be making introductions to different people And then I realized, oh, gosh, like, I do know a lot more than I thought I did. And that's how it happened. So from P-Bleep, which was a blog which me and Leon created, and then later when Leon had the idea for Brothers No Game, he obviously asked me to be involved because there was a track record there of when I tried to get him to work on P-Bleep. So P-Bleep was my idea. Leon jumped on it. Brothers No Game was Leon's idea. Because of that working relationship, I jumped on it. Obviously, through P-Bleep, most of my friends were where, where we grew up. So when Andy and and, and Eddie came up with Mixtape Manus, I was like, hey, they were like, speak to Maz. He's the guy that worked on this project. So I I ended up being invited to different startups because of that track record. And all of those two, three years of me trying things and failing, but taking the learnings from it. And then years down the line, when my wife started her store, helped her out. And then through that, people then discovered me. So it's just, it goes back to just doing the work. There's no better currency than your reputation. Like there's no, there's nothing better than being known for something very specific, especially if it's something that's in demand. Right. And for me, I was, and what kind of helped is being in a career meant that I didn't need to chase the money. It meant that I can just do it because I enjoyed it. And also it meant that I'm also learning to see that what I'm actually doing here can be applied across the board. And that's what leads to this thing about taking luck out of the equation. Because if you see it happen so many times, it almost becomes formulaic, right? So yeah, so that's how it sort of came about.
1: You didn't chase the
0: money. I didn't, bro.
1: That's a very hard thing to do when well, you're just coming up, especially coming up from Tottenham and, and everything that we've seen around us. Mm-hmm. Chasing the money was a regular thing.
0: Mm. And well,
1: So how did you differentiate man? it, man?
0: What is? Like I said, I'm quite reflective and I quite whenever I've chased it's just wait I don't know if it's this is even just random for me or I can't say it for everybody else's life but whenever I've chased money I've never or whenever I've chased anything I always feel like I've never really got it whereas if I do the work that's required it then comes and what I mean by that is I fundamentally believe business I mean business business is, is here to serve people we're here to solve problems right and I learned that strongly probably about four years ago when I started to look at the businesses that I worked on that failed and the businesses I worked on that hadn't failed that caught traction and one of the key differences that I could identify was whenever we started a business saying there's this problem and this is what we're solving even though we didn't articulate it like that right then they seemed to do really well when it was like look I need to make money and this is I've got this idea and it's gonna just make me money everybody comes up with those Eureka moments where you think, oh my gosh, if this came out, this app that does this, da-da-da. And I went through that. How you know me? I had LDN slang, which was like an app which was meant to translate London slang, right? That's a dope idea. But let's be honest, like I was only really doing that because it was scratching my own itch. That's one. But also apps were taking off at that time. There was loads of articles of people who started an app and then they made a million. So I felt like there was a little bit of an influence there. Because it didn't need to be an app. I could have just done a video on YouTube or whatever. Explaining, like, there's so many different ways to solve that problem. If it, it was even a problem on its own. So when I start measuring that to, let's say, Brothers No Game, which was a blog. The problem we're solving was particularly men from our community weren't openly talking about issues around finances, issues around relationships, issues around careers. That's a problem we're solving. And we didn't, there was no money to that. It was just, wouldn't it be dope if the conversations were having in our living rooms was articulated in a blog or, or a thing right and a few years later that turns into a, a, a tv production company mixtape madness the same thing is like, wouldn't it be great if there was a that piff which is the american version of, of mixtape madness where you can stream mixtapes from urbanized and it's like, oh, yeah, wouldn't that be dope right and then you build it and then i think about translate cultures well i know that for me i have i have a theory that i think a direct consumer which is obviously being able to sell directly to people online is going to be one of the biggest shifts in terms of helping just working class people being able to build their own businesses right if you've got an idea whether it's you're selling something or if it's some piece of art like you can do it online now and I know that's gonna I knew that was gonna come coupling that with the fact that some the communities which I come from a lot of people want to start businesses they have talent but they just don't know how to reach their audiences it just made sense the fact that i've got 10 years experience of being able to reach audiences to provide it as a service right some people come to me and say oh why don't you have your own e-commerce store i'm like well my wife's already got one (laughs) like and i know how stressful it is to have an e-commerce store you don't want that stress but i'd rather work for someone like my wife right because there's going to be more people like her who that's their expertise is building the business and all that kind of stuff. And my expertise is getting that business in front of the right people. And I just, yeah, I haven't, the last few years, I haven't really followed, put too much focus on the financial goal. I put most of my focus on just delivering excellence. And the way I measure success outside of that is the amount of referrals I get. My last four, my last seven clients have come from two people, (laughs) like literally. So one person referred, so one person A referred preferred person B and C and then person B referred person D and E and person E has referred like person F. I don't know my my, my alphabet's correct, but just from two <laughs> people, well actually from one person to be fair, from one person there's come seven clients. But then it's what that meant is you're not going to recommend someone who is of, isn't of good standard, right? So my company has grown more through referrals than business development, which for me, it makes me proud um, that we have our clients as as effectively agents. And since then, I've just kind of, yeah, I've just doubled down on the work and not really focused on the money, if I'm honest. Obviously, I, I, hey, I, I want the money. I love the money. Who doesn't, right? I've got financial ambitions and I've got, you know, things I want to provide for my family and so forth. But I know it's going to come. It just comes from excellence. And that's what I want to focus my time on.
1: So for someone who has worked in both corporate And now you're a founder and you've got a founder community. Do you recommend founders getting corporate experience or do you go straight into what they're doing?
0: Very good question. I think it really depends on the individual. I know stories of people who've just gone straight down the entrepreneurial route and smashed it. And I also know people who've gone through the same route that I've gone through and smashed it. So I think it really depends on the individual. I think for me... Naturally, growing up, I was risk averse for whatever reason. So it meant I had to take that route, and also having to provide for my family and being the eldest, the first person to go to university, coming from an African background, you have that responsibility that you can't just. I can't just turn around and say to my to my family, "Yo, I got this dream. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. It's a risk, but you know, it's gonna be six to nine months where there may not be any income, but when it happens, we're gonna be millionaires." I you can't pitch that like <laughs> no one's going to buy that right and to be fair some people do and there are stories of people from my, our background i've done it but just based on my own personality it felt like i had to set the foundations first and foremost why do i advocate this i would advocate it for someone who's got similar personality to myself in that oh well i say advocate let's just say what the pros are anyway you're learning on somebody else's Effectively, bank account, right? Like you're getting paid to learn and deliver value. So it's a good test to actually know whether your skill set as you are right now is in demand. So the fact that you have a job, it means that at least one person or one company sees value in you, irrespective of the role. Even if you're doing admin, it doesn't matter because you can start off doing admin for one company and end up building an admin agency, right? You could start in a company working as a cleaner, but that's fine. You may be the best cleaner in that company, but then the next thing you might do is you may start a, a cleaner agency because you know had to do it from company A. Why don't you just train up Mr. the next person to go do it in company B and then you build a company that way. And you may not even need to leave that company, still do cleaning there. You may move up to a cleaning manager, but then you understand the ins and outs. And I think for me... I don't think it's an either or. It's never been an either or. We've had these conversations for years, right? It's never been an either or, but it tends—you tend to have a school of thought of people who are like, "Oh, you're an employee, you're a slave for the company, you don't own any shares in it." Well, I know people who work in companies who, if we're measuring this by financial success, there's some wealthy people who've just worked their way up and invested their money in shares or pensions and whatever. So it's what you do with the money as well, if we're talking about from a financial standpoint. Also, fulfillment. Some people don't want to have the stress of waking up every morning and having to figure out where the bills are going to come. So that's the pros, definitely, in terms of working for a company is you get to learn on somebody else's watch, on somebody else's, I guess, resources. What I advise is you've got to make sure that you pay back that that, that investment, right? And I, I believe that even on the spiritual realm, That like, you, you can't take a job for granted. You almost have to. If somebody's investing in you, you've got to give back twofold, right? You've got to go. You've got to work as if. And, what, I'm, and maybe it's just a personal thing. I worked in every company. I probably say, well, maybe not every company. The second, <laughs> my second role, I where and where I got so many promotions. I worked as if I owned that company. I had to, not because of them, but because of myself, because I know what it takes then To build a company, like I always and I was fortunate, was that company was very transparent in terms of the goals and how they trickle down. So I learned so much about how my role was linked into the CEO's objective. So when I become a founder or a CEO, I then know how to structure a team and disseminate key performance indicators and goals. So to answer your question, I think it really depends on your personality. Some people just can't cut the corporate sort of structure and waking up a certain time, some people can't cut it. And for me, beginning, beginning of my career, I probably was a bit out of sync, but I had to learn it because if I'm going to try to build a company, then why not learn from, from somebody else's um, resources?
1: So now you're running your own company, you've got staff now. What are you learning as a leader and how hard have you found it? Or um, how easy have you
0: found it? Good question. It, it can be challenging, but it's so rewarding. And I think leadership is an interesting term. Because I've always described leadership as almost the opposite as well. Like to be a leader, you have to be a servant. You know what I mean? Even as a servant, you're leading. It's like when I went to work, me not being late and getting that's leadership. Like getting yourself up, you have to lead yourself out of bed to go work and earn, whether it's for your family or whatever, that those are attributes of leadership, right? And so now that as I'm moving away from the day-to-days Of bus- of the doing the business I have to lead in a slightly different way Through my actions First and foremost Like people have to see that What I'm telling them Is also how I'm living my life It's tough because Like I value family over p- Pretty much everything And and, and myself obviously, my, my own self-care and, and everything Like mental health And all that kind of stuff Like well-being Right Personal well-being And family well-being And people's well-being But there are times when like Business is tough. Like, you've got back-to-back pitches and a campaign has gone wrong. And those times, it can be tough to show what you've... to match what you've said, right? But what I've always... My style of leadership has always been, first and foremost, that. Making sure that I am very clear in terms of what I expect from people and where we're going as a company. And 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 then just leaving them to do it how they able to do it within the constraints of the of, of our company culture I, I didn't like micromanagement so i don't do it and i guess the toughest thing about leadership that i found is that you're gonna be, you're gonna be accountable which is fine i actually don't mind i've always been accountable but you also have to be you you can't you have to be prepared for the what's the word i'm looking for, for the unexpected right Like, you're never going to take your, like, even if you want to take your eye off the ball, it's very hard because there's going to be, there's going to be events that are going to test that vision or that, that culture that you've kind of said to everyone. Uh, And that's the tough part is actually sometimes missing the mark. But what I love about that is I'm able to just be transparent and say, look, I'm human. Like I do work till 3am sometimes, even though I tell people not to, sometimes I do it. But then my thinking around is, how do I stop doing it? Because the goal is not to work till 3am. But I do understand that sometimes there will be. So that's the tough part. Is just like when my actions don't match maybe some of the guiding principles that I'm trying to implement in the company. Although I know those guiding principles work. Sometimes I do go astray and then it's, it's hard having to then recalibrate. But once it's done... Like when you've you've kind of had that conversation with the team and adjusted, it, it it's so rewarding, and I just love seeing visions and cultures coming into fruition. But it's been it's been a, it's been an up and down journey. But I think I would, well, my team will be able to say whether I'm doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> how
1: have you gone about creating or being intentional about how you create the culture within TC?
0: Good question. I think for me, it was just I. my my North Star or like my goal is to create a company that is to create my ideal company. Like I've created my ideal job. I've created my ideal company. I've created my ideal lifestyle. Now, like I said, things are going to go out of sync sometimes. But whenever I don't look at that vision, that's when things do go left field. But whenever I go back and look at that vision, that look, what kind of company are you trying to create? What kind of family dynamic are you trying to create? What kind of people do you want around you? What kind of results? What kind of customers do you want to work with? What kind of customers you don't want to work with? Right? Whenever I go back to that drawing board, it just helps me basically get back on track. So for me, that was the North Star. Like, like what company would I somebody actually somebody asked a very good question this week in one of the WhatsApp groups. Is that would you work for the company that you're that you own? Knowing that somebody like you is, is is leading it. And I said 100%. And I didn't need, need even think twice, right? Because, obviously, it might sound biased. And I think most people probably say the same question. The same answer. But, this is my dream company. Like, I've taken what I don't like about the corporate world and what I don't like about the startup world and I'm effectively building it now. And that's been the vision. Like I need the company that I can wake up every morning and feel like I'm doing my life's work. And equally... I want everyone in the company to be the same so then it means i'm very transparent very early what the company culture is and what we're trying to achieve so then people can make a decision on whether that's the right company for them or not that's pretty much it for me
1: you're married to natalie who is the founder of be Spoke binning you've worked with her on her business
0: how has that been working alongside your partner it's been tough i think i think it's, it's always difficult see my wife's an amazing creative person and I am I can be very systematic and sort of data focused and can be quite linear sometimes um so there's obviously those differences but what I've realized across the years is actually that's what helps both of us work really well together is that we understand the other person's way of thinking and we try to meet halfway but that's come like later on <laughs> at the beginning it was like head to head like I know what I'm doing I know what you're doing like kind of thing we've had some challenges along the way that kind of forced us to be a bit more I guess open to the other person's approach and I think we work really well when it comes to a situation where she understands my strengths and I understand hers and weaknesses vice-versa like I understand where to stop and she understands where to stop and she knows when to ask for help and I know when to ask for, you know, to give my opinion and not to give my opinion. But I was so good because then it meant that the kind of founders that I work with now or the business, the businesses we work with, we try to have a similar kind of relationship because I'm in, the, I'm in the journey with these brands to also learn and grow. And as I grow, we'll grow together. It's just about being coachable and being open to somebody else's view. And then being, and being honest to say, look, no, I don't think that, that works. And then do it your way and then be accountable whether it goes one way or the other. But yeah, it was tough at the beginning. I think we're getting better at it. And then we still have challenges where we disagree on certain things. But the good thing is we know we're both on the same ship, as in the intention is good.
1: What's one of the biggest lessons you've learned then from
0: your marriage? To this day, my wife said to me, there's a quote she just said to me, live your truth. And having those honest conversations, as painful as they may be early, and often is super important in a relationship. And equally, when you ask for something from the other person, be happy when you get it, right? That's another very important thing because especially in a marriage and any relationship to be honest, but especially marriage, when you ask for something from someone, it's most of the time, not the little things, but let's say the big things, right? Somebody loves you, they're gonna go out of their way. Like they're gonna go left and right, like across the world to get it. And then being able to deliver that to you and then seeing the appreciation and the gratitude. That is generally more rewarding, that I I think, in terms of that person. Then, whenever you ask them for something else, then having the energy to go and 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 do it again, right? So those yeah, those are the two things for me that I've learned in marriage is just be transparent, have those tough conversations. You have to have those tough conversations and have those tough conversations early on the relation in the relationship as well. We did marriage counselling before we got married, which I think was the best decision ever. And to be honest, the marriage counselling had nothing to do with marriage. <laughs> it was literally like personal therapy because you don't know who you are none of us know we're never going to know who we really are and at least having some more awareness of it before you go into a relationship with somebody just helps and along the way i know we're going to discover parts of us that we don't know but at least there was a a strong foundation at the beginning of okay we talk through things there's going to be times we're off off the rails again but at least we know that as a tool works if things get tough, we can just sit down and say sorry and be transparent and be vulnerable if need be. So that's it for me. The first part is being transparent, being intentional in saying what you want and how you feel. And then, then the other person listening to it. And then the second part is when that other person delivers, whether positive or negative, or where they try to deliver towards something is having some form of gratitude for that effort because it, it can get quite challenging if you feel like... You're not getting that, that positive feedback. And I think those two for me have been major lessons and I'm sure there's more that I'm going to learn along the way.
1: Vulnerability is always a very interesting um, subject. So I'm very interested to learn and understand how
0: you've managed being vulnerable in your marriage. I think better, better in the last, well, better through, through marriage. I think obviously having the counselling really helped. But it's also knowing that, look, And that goes back to the point about live your truth. So I didn't delve into that too much, but I guess I can delve into it more on this question. Like when you live with someone, your wife or your husband, they know everything about you pretty much more than anyone else, right? Outside of yourself, you would expect, by the way. So for me, it was almost like my wife was always very aware when I was not being 100%. So she would challenge me on that. And also I can tell when my wife's not happy about something <laughs> and vice versa, right? And I, but I think that's beautiful though. I think it's almost like a mirror, a constant mirror. And and it's the worst when you're at rock bottom. It's when like you're trying to play all cool and then I'm going to go home and this woman is going to read right through me or this guy, he knows that I'm, I'm chatting, you know what I mean? But I think that's, I think that helps, or oh, it should help anyway, for me, it helps that self-awareness, kind of like, it's a mirror, it's, you're going to have this daily mirror that is going to hopefully challenge you to grow. So then it kind of, for me, is always, what do you want? What do you want for yourself? What do you want for you and Natalie? What do you want for your child and your friends and so forth? And I try to have those conversations with my wife as much as possible. And it's tough now because we've both got businesses and we've got a little one and one thing I do miss is is actually us having a lot of time to have those deep conversations. And we'll work, you know, we're carving out those moments. But because those are powerful, man. Like just having someone that you can just sometimes just download your thoughts to. But yeah, that, that whole live your truth stuff. When she said that to me, it was almost like, and there's always things sometimes I have a thinking about things worked out this way. And my wife will have a totally different perspective on it. I'm like, oh gosh, you're right. It's good because you're kind of like the CCTV in my head that's like filming everything that I'm not seeing. I think that's beautiful. And sometimes, I mean, that's just, I have it in marriage. Some people have that through close friends or family members or twins or whatever. But I think that's super important to have because it helps you be truthful to yourself as much as possible.
1: One thing you mentioned earlier on was you were very risk averse. Mm -hmm. But now you're a husband- your father. Now you're running your own company, so something's really shifted in in that whole.
0: Yeah. Thing.
1: When did that happen, and how did that happen?
0: Ah, there's so many things that chipped away at it. Obviously, I've got friends like yourself and a few of other our friends. We've got mastermind groups. We shared each other content. We, you know, almost mentor each other, right? So that's been great. But also. Coming to the realisation that if you do something long enough and it's not working, you have to just try something different. And it's actually just very interesting videos that, and I've always been lucky to have friends on the other extreme. So as much as I was risk averse, I had friends that were risk averse and maybe some people that were in the middle. I had people on the other side who were just like risk. And what I looked at and I realised, actually, you know what? it doesn't really matter whether you're risk averse or whatever, because people, you can fail either way. You can fail, take risk and lose everything. Or you can be risk averse and don't achieve, every, you know, don't achieve your thing. So for me, it was like, you've got to slowly start moving into the other side, like the balance. I think balance is probably the best thing that I'm kind of looking for. I wouldn't say I'm now risk, like a risky person, but I always look at risk now as an opportunity to learn now when this is something i picked up from my wife she hates not what's the word she doesn't like not trying because like she would just know the results like one way or the other and I, and I admire that about her but at the beginning it was challenging for us because for me it was like oh, you why didn't you think that through before you did it right but equally, as humans, we're strange creatures because if that was a positive result, it'd be like, "Hey, well done," kind of thing, right? It's always when it's negative that we seem to judge off our, our decision-making process. So that's something I've had to develop over the years, just being with my wife and kind of friends and stuff, to realize actually, man, what if your way of thinking is actually what's holding you back? You've, I think one one thing I did one, so I started doing a lot of experiments, right. So in terms of before I started my company, one of the experiments I did was I changed my LinkedIn bio to my ideal next career path. So I put in all of my accolades of everything that I had achieved from startup to thing. And the goal was for to get at least 50 inquiries from recruiters. And what I did is literally a new CRM or data was like growing as a field. So, I put in all my accolades, all the great things I was doing in my company and everything. And I had over 50 inquiries from recruiters. And for me, how did I help my risk adversity was that it proved to me that the market was in demand for my services. So worst case, if I left the company, I could always go to get another job. Obviously by then I didn't know what COVID was going to come, but still <laughs> it, it's just, a, it's just a mental thing, right? Because, What's risky to me isn't risky to the next person. There's stuff now that I used to worry about. I look back and think, how? And there's people who, like, what I'm doing is not even risky at all. And I accept that. And, And I'm not arguing for anyone to be too far one way or the other. But just have conversations, ways or mental models, as they call it, to be able to challenge yourself when the results that you're getting isn't satisfactory. So what are your mental models? I think for me, I think, yeah, for, when it comes to risk, I would, for a lot of my mental models are linked to stories, right? So I'm always thinking about what story am I telling myself? What if someone else who's on the other side of the fence laid down, I guess, their evidence against what I'm laying down? Who's right at the end of it? So I'll give you an example. So a friend of mine sent me a video years ago which talked about he said basically risk is subjective okay so he said somebody who's on in a job earning 50 grand a year probably thinks it's risky for them to leave that job because they have 50 grand worth of commitments or 50 grand worth of lifestyle right so they always they're potentially thinking of the worst Right, they're thinking if I leave this job and try something and it doesn't work, I'm losing fifty k worth of things. It's too risky. Now the downside is if they leave that job and try something different, is the downside is between forty nine thousand ninety nine down to zero. Okay, so that's the worst that can happen. They can earn one p less than they're currently earning, or they can earn nothing if it's just a disaster. Okay, okay. but the upside is. 50k and 1p to a trillion right so like they could start the company tomorrow and obviously this is man, really hypothetical but like they could start a company tomorrow and be the next jeff bezos in the next 10 15 years right but they're not even entertaining that because their risk is based on the 50k because that's the lifestyle that they're, they're living and when i got that when i saw that video i realized gosh that is so true because a lot of my decisions were kind of made on the fact that I'm trying to protect this what I've this lifestyle that I've built. But in fact, if I earned, and it's not about the money, but let's say if I earn double of what I'm earning and I'm doing something I love. Then that creates a lot more security than me staying somewhere that maybe I loved it, but not as much as I love it if I earn double. But equally, if, if I earn half of the 50k, if I earn 25k... But I enjoy it a lot more And it means that I do such a great work That I'm growing at a faster rate Than I would in a career You know what I mean So a lot of my mental models Are kind of those kind of Storytelling kind of ones And that that was an example That kind of helped trigger that So now whenever I have to make a decision I don't try to overthink it But I always think When it's a tough decision To always have both sides of the fence And then but the key is action you have to take action one way or the other Either you are going to do it you're not going to do it that's the that's the anchor that makes you not have analysis paralysis it's say okay i'm gonna to need to make this decision tomorrow by 12 between now and eleven i'm going to do the debating one way or the other for mr extreme and mr not extreme right but at 11 59 someone's got to win this debate and for me time boxing decisions helps But then my mental models are generally about looking at the other side of the defense, especially when it comes around risk is about thinking, is this a subjective view of risk of me based on my upbringing, based on what I know versus what the world knows. Right. And then I I try to challenge that and then, and then take action and then be comfortable with one way or the other.
1: As a father, a founder, how are you bringing up your daughter to deal with risk? I just talked about entrepreneurship and to develop a good level of self awareness so she can
0: lead herself. She's pretty young. I hope, I mean, if she's interested in business in the future, that'd be great because she'll have good foundations. But if she isn't, I think I always try to focus on universal things that are consistent beyond business or sports or whatever. I think one thing I've learned from my experiences is making sure that she's loved once she knows that's the most important thing because then it means she can then make the right decision in terms of her own life if she wants to go into business or not as best as possible for me and my wife to be good examples of what it is to be a leader what i mean by leader doesn't necessarily have to mean you have to lead people just leading yourself as we've talked about many a times it's like why does daddy get up in the morning and go for a drug every day well he's trying to improve his Mental, physical, health, right? She probably doesn't understand that at this moment. She probably just think, "Oh, daddy's going for a jog. Daddy's going for a walk." And she, like, whenever I'm going to the door, she's like, "Daddy, you going for a walk?" Kind of thing. But I know I'm going to have that conversation with her, so I'm just trying to show habits that are. And this is the thing: is you got to be very careful because what I might think we positive habits may not necessarily be. So I'm trying to basically be showing habits that. I can not justify, but I can explain to her why I'm doing it this way. Why do I need, why does daddy do this? and Why does mommy do this? I think the first thing we're just trying to do is just make sure that she knows that she's loved. That's the most important thing because Mm. we do make a lot of our decisions based on that. Like, whether it's seeking validation from people outside of your family, seeking validation outside of yourself. That's something I wouldn't want for, I would want her just to be, to feel first and foremost that she's got People that would love her, irrespective of whether she's a billionaire or not. That's one. Two, is to have a comfortable relationship with failure and trying. Just try it if it doesn't work. And I think she's getting that now. Try again. She'll be like, okay, can I try again? I'm like, yeah, try again. And that's that's, that's the second one. And and, and the third one, like what my wife said to me, is that live your truth. That's the real freedom, is to feel like you can be, obviously, as much closest to hundred percent of yourself as possible that is worth more than anything it's like knowing that you accept yourself foremost first of all most of, as you are and that hopefully and that everyone around that loves you accepts you for who that is it pretty much keeps you protects you from the 99.9 percent of the world not accepting you like it doesn't really matter anymore because you're within yourself who you are and the people that you love kind of know who you are and give you the space for you to explore that. I mean, those are the three things that I'm kind of keen to make sure that she she develops over time. But then, then the rest is up to her. Like, whatever she wants to do, she'll know that she'll get the opportunity to do it and be supported. And irrespective of the results, she'll grow from it.
1: I love that. As we're coming towards the end, I need to ask you, Hip hop, you quote hip hop lyrics on a regular. Yes. So, favorite lyric?
0: Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. Of all time.
1: <laughs> of all time. Why?
0: I, I don't think I can say one. I think there's just, there's so many. I think in the context of business, since this is kind of more business kind of oriented, oh, there's so many. I can't even think of one. Gosh, that's a really good question. I've got loads. But I think for me, one of my favourite lyrics is when I was so grown up was from Jay-Z on the song called Filling It. And he said, if every person in your clique is rich, your clique is rugged, nobody will fall because everybody will be each other's crutches. Right? And for me, that was so interesting because it talks about, obviously, group economics, talks about investing in others. And it's very much aligned to a lot of, I think sort of African culture, like a lot of African diaspora culture around, it takes a village to raise a child, that kind of thing. So you almost have to invest in the village because that village will later look after your child if need be, right? So that was always, yeah, that was always, that's always been, that was like my quote at uni for 30 years. If every person in your clique is rich, your clique is rugged. Nobody will focus everybody on each other's crutches. And it has always been my view Rightly or wrongly, because sometimes you end up in a situation. I when rich, you know, we're talking about money, obviously, but I think rich goes beyond money. It's just wealth. It's you're full of, it's abundance, right? If you feel if you're abundantly happy and just abundantly have wisdom and you have so much more to give to others, when I lack, I can take some of that joy. I can take some of that wisdom. I can take some of that. And if it's financial, then yes, then, you know, I have to ask you or I need a little bit of change here because I'm, I'm struggling financially. So for me, rich is more than just money. So in that sense is like you have to sow seeds into people so they can grow wealthy or rich in, in other aspects of life. You may need to encourage your friends during tough times. So they can go so they can grow and, and, and be a happier person, because there's going to be a time when you have a downer, you may just need to call them and take some of that positive energy. So I would say probably that's probably my favorite lyric, and I think it covers beyond just business. It's kind of this thing where if everybody around you is rich or wealthy or abundant, then you can borrow from them. You can if, they're cu- if everybody's cup is full, there'll be and there'll be no empty cup. What does culture mean to you? Interesting. I think for most people, obviously, from the black community, when we say culture, we mean black culture, right? Culture in general, for me, I think it's just what the the, the definition is in the the dictionary, right? Customs, unspoken ways of doing things, sometimes can be close-knit communities, just kind of customs and things or ways of doing things from a a particular group of people. And for me, why I knew the importance of culture is... It kind of transcends time. There are certain things that I find very strange. Like, especially black culture, using that as an example, right? I remember when I was young, this is a, a weird example to give, but I knew this from a very young age. There was a, a kid that I was kind of in school with, primary. there was infants, I think, it might have been infants or primary. I can't remember. And it was from a it was from Caribbean background. Obviously, I'm from Congo, so I'm African. And this is like early 90s right or sort of early 90s and we uh, were in a playground playing and he said to me your mom right and this is going to sound very interesting like very vile but and i was offended right but nobody else was a, nobody else saw that as an insult this and this is back in 90s right like your mom like that's a cuss right where we come from He said, "Your mom." I told the teacher. He said, "My mom." Like I'm going to fight with him, and I told the teacher, "Like why did I got in trouble?" Because I reacted to that, right? No one else, except him and I, and a few of the black kids, knew that he had insulted me, right? And that always stuck in my head. And that's the and this is our like introspective, like reflective. I, I I was even back then as a kid. Right? Hold on. No one else saw that as an offense. Now. You say someone... You say your mum to someone... It doesn't matter what background you are... Like, everybody knows that's a... Like, even Stormzy and was battling Wiley... And then it was in the Daily Mail... That he said your mum... It becomes a thing now, right? <laughs> but back then, I always think... Gosh, nobody actually knew... But for me, what's very interesting there is like... I, I've not sat down and really thought about it is... What is it between the relationship that... Black men particularly have... Or black boys have with their mum? Right? That, that becomes an insult Because for everybody else It just felt like Oh he just said Your mom. What's that like, That's not a cuss And I still haven't That's probably one of the Things I need to I think I would love to just figure out in life Like How could This way like, like Like Totally different Culture Technically Right In his West West, West Indian Or, or um, Caribbean And I'm from Congo And I think we've just Only been in the country For four years or something Right But that was an offence and for me, that just... And then obviously as you grow, there are certain... Th- the foods and all of these different things and there's just certain things that you do as as particularly in the black culture, that in, you just... Like hip-hop, I'm a huge hip-hop fan, right? Hip-hop is from like... It's from New York, but it resonates with me deeper than, just, than, than that. There's a certain thing. It just reminds me of certain parts of the music that we have in Congo. So... For me, like, I just want to say culture transcends time and space. It's that. It's like there are certain nuances that you just have that lets you. There is some sort of connection. And I think with data now that we're working online and everything, the world's getting smaller. So something like your mom now is probably universally known in the West as, a, as a, an offensive term. That shows how closer as a community we're becoming, right? But also what it, well, it starts to show when I look at things like Afrobeats, how it's kind of got a mixture of Jamaican, reggae, like all of this, even grime, all of this stuff. There's just a mixture of a melting pot of all these different cultures coming into one. It also shows the strength of, if, if we was speaking about black culture in terms of the African diaspora, right? And I'm sure other cultures have that experience. But for me, it's like the world is getting smaller, because it's all connected. Language is getting smaller. Like people are being exposed to things that would have taken them years to get in, in a second Something's trending in America. We know it within seconds, right? So the world's getting smaller. So then my company, literally, that's why, that's why we, we navigate in that space of culture, data, and storytelling. Because it's then about how do we piece together all of these conversations that are happening in, in culture and in, in society with the data that we're seeing in terms of the behaviors on our websites and our platforms. And with whatever the brand is trying to convey to those people and making that as authentic as possible, right, because right now you' you can't you can't afford to get anything wrong mm-hmm. as a brand, well let alone as a personality right you can't afford to get so you've got to have your ears out to the quote unquote streets or to really understand what the the, the sentiment is around your community or the culture that you serve so yeah, for me, so to answer your question, I think yeah culture is that it's that kind of unspoken ways of doing things. And I always go back to that story in primary school. To this day, it's mind-boggling. And there probably is a normal response for it, but that just triggered to me that there are certain nuances that we don't understand and certain links that we have as humans. And I think it's only going to get more interesting as we become more connected through the digital world.
1: And the last question, what do you want your legacy to be?
0: Very good question. I think I had the answer to this written somewhere, but you can see that It's probably not in the back of my mind. I think for me, I'll have to, let me just have a think So I'd say the right thing here. Yeah, I can't, to be honest, it's it's not something that's like regularly in the back of my mind, but I'm sure it's something I need to reflect on. But overall, I think I want to be somewhat known as somebody who gave more to the world than he took. That's That's just the general, what's it called? Premise, right? Like, I'd i want people to say that my contribution was larger than life, and I think for me, I've always been I live I've, I've as much as I was like risk averse and stuff. I've always had an abundant mindset. I've always believed that think anything's possible. I've always I, I don't believe in or I don't believe in in order for me to win, I have to steal from you. Like I believe, like I can create and we can co-create. And I want my life to be that example. I want the work I do to be something that enriches people. In fact, this is probably what I want my legacy. You know how saying like everything you touch turned to gold? That's what I want my legacy to be. I don't want to I want to be the person that said everything I was involved in grew. Right? You don't want the reputation the other way around. <laughs> like I don't think anyone does, right? So I'm willing to do whatever it takes to, to be that person and more so that company because I think the company now is an extension of myself. So it's not just about my ego or whatever, but it's more about taking what I believe is my God given gift is to help and, and help things grow and finding similar people who have that same vision, who, when they work on something, it blossoms. So to answer your question, it's essentially those two things kind of somewhere in between, everything you touch kind of turns to gold kind of analogy a term saying but also somebody that paid back more than he took in from life
1: and on that note I'm just going to say that I've, I've known mad for 20 years like while wow, we're old but he's constantly someone that always gives back even now from my friendship circles to the DTC group we haven't talked about which is what 100 plus founders and he's been giving a lot of value to so much that he does in the community, in the culture, you're already doing that. That legacy is already been, been lived. And he's someone that's known as the person to come to you for help, for guidance, for nurturing. Mm-hmm. So keep on doing that. Keep on doing what you're doing.
0: Thank you. And equally, I just want to say thank you for inviting me. And the same goes for you. And I'm really proud to to see this, this, this podcast. And I know you've had a few people on this and, it's, it's a good initiative, and I'll, I'll, keep, I'll keep an ear out for, for new episodes.
1: This is Everyday Leadership. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Leadership. You can check out the show notes on www.mindsetshift.co.uk forward slash podcast where you can find out more about my guests and how you can contact them. You can listen to old episodes or if you have a question about this episode or any other episodes, you can just press a button and ask me that question and I'll answer it on the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe, comment, share this podcast with someone else. We'll see you next time. On Everyday Day leadership.